The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John in chapter 5, reading from verse 17 to verse 23. From verse 17 to verse 23 in the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. But Jesus answered them, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth, and he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no men, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Well, now I've read those verses to you because they obviously convey one great message. And the most important and vital message it is. I really want to concentrate upon that last verse which I read, the 23rd verse, because it all, in a sense, leads up to that. That all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Now, you will remember, especially those who've been here on the last two Sunday evenings, that what we're looking at together here this evening is a kind of continuation and, uh, in a sense, a sequel to that which we have already been considering. In the first uh, 16 verses of this uh, chapter, we are given an account of that miracle which was worked and performed by the Lord Jesus Christ on that impotent man who was there by the pool of Bethesda. You remember the story. This poor man who had been ill, suffering from this kind of paralysis for 38 long years. But he had heard, as others had heard, that uh, if a man could only be put into that pool after it had been stirred, by an angelic visitation, that he would be healed. And there he'd been for years, obviously hoping at first that his chance, his day might come. But the long years had come and had gone, and always somebody else got in before him. He was a poor man, he couldn't afford a servant, a man's servant to lift him and carry him in. Always somebody else. And there he is, lying on his what is called here is bed, a kind of mat or mattress. Utterly hopeless, entirely disconsolate. 
not only helpless, he'd even given up hope. Suddenly, he is approached by this stranger who says, Wilt thou be made whole? And he gives his statement, you remember, about the futility of it all. Then suddenly, our Lord looks at the men and says, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And all this happened on a Sunday, on the Sabbath. And then you remember what happened. The Jews, therefore, said unto him that was cured, This is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. And we went into that last Sunday, you remember, how the men didn't quite understand who it was who had healed him. But later, our Lord found this man in the temple and approached him and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole, you've been made whole, you've been cured, you've been healed. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. And then the men went and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Now, we've been looking at that. We've looked at it as it is a picture and a representation of our Lord's great and glorious work in salvation. And then last Sunday, we were looking at it as uh, it gives us a picture of this curious reaction of mankind to the Lord Jesus Christ. Typified in the statements made by these Jews and their hatred of him and their desiring to kill him and to get rid of him. We considered that as it puts before us the things which still lead men and women to fail to believe this gospel and submit to it. All this petty interest in carrying a mat on a Sunday and missing the miracle. Interested in the small things and their own little difficulties and failing to see and believe in the Son of God. What a tragic thing it is. But the story doesn't end there. It goes on, you see. And that is what we have in these verses that we are looking at together this evening. The conversation between our Lord and these Jews went on. The man has made his statement and the Jews are in a state of fury and so they come to our Lord. And uh, he looks at them and he says, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. And the effect of that upon them was to drive them into a yet greater state of fury. They now sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. And so the conversation continued. And our Lord begins to make a statement to them. Then which, I do not hesitate to say, there is no more profound statement in the whole of the scripture. And that is what I want to try to call your attention to this evening. May the Holy Spirit enable me to do so. And may he enable you to hear and to listen at the same time. Because here... We are face to face with the most exalted and the most glorious doctrine 
that a human being can ever consider. It is nothing but the great doctrine of the blessed Holy Trinity. Now, let us not be daunted. Let us look at it, let us consider it together, because here we are dealing with something that is vital to our salvation, something I hope to show you that is going to affect and determine our eternal and everlasting destiny. What is the message? Well, let me put it to you like this. These Jews, it seemed to me, it seems to me, represent a type of person that is common amongst us at the present time and may very well be represented in this congregation this evening. What is their attitude? Well, put it, putting it briefly, we can put it like this. Here are men, you see, who think and believe that they are believers in God, that they are serving God, that they're jealous about the honor of God, that the biggest thing in their lives is to obey God, and yet at the same time, they reject, they even hate the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the position, I think you'll agree. They say that it is their interest in the law of God and in the honor of God that makes them speak to the men and to the Lord Jesus Christ. They see this man carrying his mat on the Sunday and they say, look here, don't you realize that this is the Sabbath day? And that God's law says that you should not carry a, a thing like this, not do any work on the Sabbath day, and you're doing work by carrying that mat. You're dishonoring God. They were the guardians of the honor of God. They not only claimed to be believers in God, but that they were unusually zealous for the name of God. And yet, you see, at the same time, as I'm pointing out, they do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They reject him and they hate him and they feel that he is someone who is breaking the law of God and therefore bringing dishonor upon the name of God. That's the position. Now, I say that this is a type which is not at all uncommon at the present time. I am referring to the sort of person who says, yes, I, I'm a believer in God. I've always believed in God. I was taught as a child to say my prayers and I've continued the practice ever since. I believe in God. I try to worship God. I'm trying to live a life that is pleasing in God's sight. I hope to go to heaven when I die. They say that they're Believers in God, God-fearing, that they are religious people. And yet as you talk to them, you will often find that they never mention the name of the Lord Jesus Christ at all. They claim to be Christians. They may be members of Christian churches. They may even be zealous, not only in their attendance, they may work actively in the Christian church. And yet, as you talk to them about Christianity, this is what you get from them. This talk about God, about pleasing God, about living a good and a moral life because God calls for that and demands that. 
And then you say to them, well, you say you desire to go to heaven. On what are you relying in order that you may go to heaven? And they say, well, I've always tried to live a good life. I've tried to do my best. I've tried to give a helping hand. But you say, we say, you're not perfect. You don't claim, no, no, they say, we're not perfect. Well, then we ask, well, what about your sins? The sins you've committed, what's going to happen to them? Ah, oh, they say, we believe God is a God of love. And we believe that in his love he'll be, he'll be ready to forgive us if we repent and acknowledge our sins and ask him to pardon us and to receive us. And on the conversation goes. And the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is literally not mentioned at all. That's the kind of person I'm dealing with. Men and women who feel that you can believe in God without Christ, that he doesn't come in at all, who believe they're even Christian, and yet, somehow or another, never mention his name at all. Now, that's the very kind of person, it seems to me, that is being dealt with in this passage that we are looking at this evening. For, you see, its message is this. That the Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely essential. And that there is nothing that is more useless and vain and futile than to think that you can believe in God and please him without the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. Listen to him again. That all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father. Who has sent him? You claim, he says, in effect to these Jews, that you're honoring the Father. But you can't honor the Father while you dishonor me. That's the tragedy of this position. The Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely essential. Belief on him is essential. That's the point that he makes here. There is a sense in which we almost ought to be grateful to these Jews for their blindness. Because it was that which led our Lord to give this amazing and astonishing exposition as to who he was and his relationship to his father. And notice the way in which it happened. Here they are, you see, making this charge. They say that Jesus is a lawbreaker because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. And then he replies to them, My father worketh hitherto and I work. And they saw, they said, This is even worse. He is now not only breaking the Sabbath, but he has said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. And our Lord, instead of disputing that, agrees with it. He accepts it. And goes on in effect to say this to them, of course I am. That's exactly what I am claiming. Listen to me. And then he comes to his positive exposition. Now then, let me try and simplify it as far as I can by putting it to you like this. Let me put it in a very practical form. Why is it absolutely essential to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Someone may say to me, why should I believe in that Christ of yours? Why isn't it enough to believe in God and try and live a good life? Why do you keep on saying that this Christ is essential? Let us listen to his own answers to the question. The first reason is this. We are to believe in him because he is who he is. Now, these Jews, as I'm reminding you, thought that his work of healing the men on the Sabbath meant that he was breaking God's will, that he was going contrary to God's will. And what our Lord really is saying to these men is this, that far from breaking God's will in healing the men on the Sabbath, he's been doing God's will. And then he goes on to teach them about his own relationship to God. He says, all that I do is the same. I have come into the world to do God's will. And so he goes on expounding it. He is entirely one with the Father. Far from there being a clash or a conflict, between God the Father and himself, he says, I'm altogether one with him in every respect, and everything I do, that miracle included, is but what he is doing. And so he opens out this tremendous doctrine of his relationship to the Father. Oh, I say again, that there is nothing in this world this evening that is quite as important as this. When I say that, I'm not detracting in any way from the importance of the many things that are happening in the world. The world is in a critical condition. Tremendous things are happening. We all are aware of that. But my dear friend, I think you'll have to agree with me when I say this, that surely the biggest and the most important and the most momentous event that has ever happened or ever can happen in this world is the one that is chronicled and reported in this book. This is, I say, not to derogate from the activities of great men. It's no part of the gospel to do that. Thank God for great men. God has given them the abilities. Thank God for great statesmen, great artists, great poets, great philosophers, everybody. I know, all right, but what I'm saying is this, that when you put them all together, they just pale into insignificance, side by side with this fact that the very Son of God, the eternal second person in the Holy Trinity, has been down into this world, has come into it in order to save it and to solve its problem. This is the thing that the world should be looking at, but it's not looking at it, and it's not looking at it because it doesn't realize who he is and this truth about him. So listen to what he says. Let me make it plain and clear before I proceed. I'm not asking you to understand what I'm going to say. I don't understand it myself. And I'll go further. I'm not meant to understand it, neither are you. If I could understand this doctrine, I'd be equal to God. Understand the doctrine of the Trinity? Out upon the suggestion, how can a little finite man who doesn't even understand himself understand the everlasting and eternal God and the three persons in the Godhead? Don't try to understand it. 
I, I have to emphasize this for this good reason. That if you are going to insist upon understanding, you're doomed to failure. And that is the madness of the human race that attempts to understand what cannot be understood. We believe it, we receive it. We cannot explain him in any other terms. We bow before the mystery and the marvel and the glory of it all. Oh, well, I'm just saying that we must all be ready to say with the Apostle Paul, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. That's it. Well, now then, let's look at the way in which he says it. Here is his first claim. He says, that he is one with God in essence, in being. Here it is. My Father and I. Had you realized that nobody had ever said that before? There are great men in the Old Testament, great saints, men who attain great heights in the spiritual realm. Think of an Abraham. Think of a Moses. Think of a David, an Isaiah, a Jeremiah. Oh, look at them all and listen to what they say. Not a man among them ever dared to say, My Father and I. Not one. They were but men. They dare not say it. But here, you see, is one who does say it. And he says it's because it's true. He said it again explicitly later on. My father and I, he said, are one. One. And did you notice it in that great high priestly prayer of his that we read together? In the reading at the beginning he goes on saying it. I in me and I in thee. One in essence. One substance. The Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit are everlastingly one in being. My Father and I. And of course, these Jews say what you like against them. They were at any rate much more intelligent than the modern Unitarians and people who call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses. These people had sufficient intelligence to see what he was claiming. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he had not only broken the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. And that's precisely what he was doing. He accepts their statement. He doesn't contradict it. He doesn't deny it. He takes it and he adds to it and he makes it yet more plain. He is one in essence with the Father. He is eternally generated by the Father. One in substance and eternal divine essence. We bow before the mystery. But that is what he's saying. But then he goes on to say that they're also one in work, in their operations. And he puts this in a series of statements. In that 17th verse, he's really saying this, that everything God does, he does also. My father worketh hitherto, and I work. 
What's he mean by that? Well, he means this. Here are these Jews, you see, these little men with their little legalistic minds who have completely misunderstood the teaching about the Sabbath. Have reduced it to a legalism and have missed the spirit. That the Sabbath was not, that the Sabbath was made for men and not men for the Sabbath. What he really says is this. Look here, he says, you say that because God rested on the seventh day, that he's never done anything since on the seventh day. What tragic nonsense, he says, in effect. My father rested from the work of creation on that seventh day. But ever since then, he's kept the whole universe going, every day, Sabbath included. If he were to withhold his working, the universe would collapse. God keeps the universe going seven days a week. It is he in his providential care for men that makes life possible seven days a week. My father worketh hitherto. He's been working for the good and the benefit of mankind. He was doing it right through the Old Testament, Sunday and weekday alike. And I have done the same. I am with him from eternity. My father worketh hither, hitherto and I work. He was with the Father in creation. Have you noticed what seems at first sight to be a contradiction in the Scriptures? We read in the first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And yet you remember in the prologue of this Gospel of John, we are told this, all things were made by him, the Word, the Son, and without him was not anything made that was made. The Father creates, the Son creates, the Holy Spirit brooded upon the face of the, of the deep, the abyss. He creates. You see, this is the doctrine of the Trinity. They're all working together. It is done by the Father, it is done by the Son. In creation, in the sustaining of the universe, in the work of, uh, through the Jews in the Old Testament, God did it, the Son did it, the angel of the covenant, my Father worketh hitherto, and I work. He again in verse 19 makes it yet plainer. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he the Father doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. In the same manner, in the same way, he does the same thing. This is but a statement that they act together and that what the Father does, the Son does and always has done. That's his first statement. They're one in the work done. But he also goes on to say that they're one in their will. The Son, he says, can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. What he means is this. He says, you are suggesting to me, and you really believe, that in what I did when I healed that man just now on this Sabbath day, that I have been exercising my will, and that it is against the will of God. He said, I can never will anything against the will of the Father. 
The son can do nothing of himself, by himself. I cannot do anything myself and of my own will. Why? Well, because my will is one with the father's will. That's what it means. The son can do nothing of himself. He doesn't mean that he lacks the power. That isn't what it means at all. He means that he never can or will be in a position that he wills one thing and the father the other. That was the charge brought against him. He says impossible. Because my will and the will of the father are one, eternally one. One in activity, one in will. But furthermore, they're one in knowledge and one in purpose. Listen to this. The son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the son likewise. For the father loveth the son and showeth him, showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these that ye may marvel. Now the important words are the words seeing and showing. You see, this is it. And this to me is the most glorious bit of information that you and I can ever receive. This is a picture of a great eternal council before the very formation of the world. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are met together and they're looking at the plan of salvation. The Father is expounding it and the Son is seeing it. He is looking at it. He is learning it. He is agreeing with it. One in knowledge. One in purpose. That's his claim. That he and the Father are absolutely agreed about what is needed in this world and what is to be done about it and how it is to be done and everything else. He says, you are charging me with being opposed to the Father, that I'm doing something against the Father's will. He says, don't you see that I'm here because I've come to do what we agreed upon in eternity before the foundation of the world. We are one in knowledge, one in understanding, one in purpose, one in action, one in will, one in everything. In other words, our Lord was claiming here as plainly and as explicitly as he ever did, that he is one with God and equal with God in every respect, that he is none other than the second person in the blessed Holy Trinity, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father of the same substance, sharing the life of God in all its fullness, Glory and majesty. And that far from cutting across the will of God by healing a poor man on the Sabbath day, he is doing the will of God. The gracious, loving, compassionate, kind will of God that planned a way of salvation for mankind though it was rebellious and sinful and vile. That's what he's saying. Why should we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? We should believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the eternal and everlasting 
Son of God. But come to a second reason. We should believe on him because of what he has come to do. Or if you prefer it, we should believe on him because of that which the Father has sent him to do. What is that? Well, he tells us here quite plainly. Why did the Son of God come into the world? Here is one of the answers given. He came to reveal the Father. You remember those words again in that prayer? O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. Do you remember the word in the first chapter? No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. That's why he's come. Do you know God? What do you know about God? The God you've argued about so many times and have said clever things about him in the religious debate and argument. What do you know about God? Do you know him? Oh, says the Son, I have come to reveal God. He has come to glorify God. He has come to do a given special work that the Father has given him to do. What is that? Well, it's the carrying out of this great purpose of God in redemption that they've already agreed about. That's why he's come. Or if you like to put it in the language he used to these Jews, it's this. He said in effect to them, you believe that you're honoring the Father. And that in your punctiliousness about Sabbath observance, you are giving great honor to God. And you think that I'm taking honor from God. Don't you see, he says, that I've come into the world in order that you and others might be enabled really to honor God. You don't know him. You've never seen his shape. He says later on, I've come from him. Mankind cannot honor God as it is. We are ignorant and we are in darkness. And it is only in the face of Jesus Christ that we really know God. Do you remember what he said later on? To that disciple Philip who said, look here, you say you're going. What's going to happen to us? Show us the Father and it sufficeth us. And he looked at him and he said, have I been so long time with you? And yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He who hath seen me hath seen the Father, having already said to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you don't know God in Jesus Christ, you don't know him at all. And your God is a figment of your own imagination. It is in him and in him alone we see him. So he has come to reveal the Father, to glorify the Father, to honor the Father, and to enable us to honor the Father. How does he do that? That's the second thing he says under this heading. He has come in order that he might give us that which is absolutely essential to a knowledge of God. 
and to an honoring of God. And what is this? Well, that is life. Listen to him putting it. He says, He will show him greater works than these that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. Now, to quicken means to give life. And he says, look at me. I have come into this world to give men life. I believe he was referring partly to physical life. I think he was referring here partly to his raising of the son of the widow of Nain and to Jairus, his daughter, and to Lazarus. He says, you're amazed at this one action of mine. Why, he says, that's nothing. God with the Father is going to show me greater works than these that you may marvel. Raising the dead. I've got power to give life to the dead, physically. But I don't think he was stopping at this. I think when he used the term quicken, he was using it in this spiritual sense also. Later on he makes it quite explicit that he had got that in his mind, that he has come into this world to give life to people who are spiritually dead. Why don't we know God? Why don't we honor God? And you know the answer is this. It is because we are spiritually dead. Dead in trespasses and sins. Before we can know God and honor God, we must have something of God in us. Like attracts like. We don't know him because we are unlike him. God is light and we are dark. God is holy and pure and we are sinful. We lack life. We lack the power and the ability. And before I can know God and honor God, I must have life, spiritual life. He says he's come to give it. The Father gives life. The Son gives life. Do you notice how again he put it in that high priestly prayer? He says that he's come to give eternal life to as many as the Father has, has given him. And then he says, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. You'll never know God without the gift of eternal life. We need a new faculty before we can know God. We need to have a new principle within us. He said it already to Nicodemus. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't do it as you are. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. As you are, you cannot know God. I'll give you life. And then you'll know God. And begin to honor him. That's the second reason for believing in him. If you really want to know God and to honor God, to please God and to obey God, and to spend your eternity in the presence of God, there's only one way. It is to receive life from this person. And if you don't believe he's the son of God, if you don't believe he can give you life, you'll never have life and you'll remain dead and you'll never know God. And you'll remain outside the life of God to all eternity. He has come to enable us to honor God. 
by giving us the life, the life of God himself. And that brings me to my last point about which I say just a word. We are to believe in him because of that which he will yet do. Believe in him because he is who he is. Believe in him because of that which he came to do and has done. Believe in him because of that which he is yet going to do. Listen. For the Father judges no men, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. You realize what that means? Judgment. What is judgment? Well, judgment is first and foremost government, rule, and order. The government of this world and its affairs. The destiny of this world. And what he is claiming here is that that is in his hands that the Father has given it to him. Oh, you remember after his resurrection... He said it very plainly and clearly. He said, all power is given to me in heaven and in earth. The government is upon his shoulders. It is he who broke off the seals from the book of history. And it's he who is unfolding it. He is the judge, the governor, the ruler of the world. He is seated upon his throne until all his enemies shall be made his footstool. The judge. Yes, but he says another thing. He's already said it in the third chapter of this gospel. His coming into this world is a judgment of this world. He says that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And he says the man who doesn't believe is judged, condemned already. Because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. The judgment is going on. He's already dividing men. Did you notice it again in the high priestly prayer? I pray for them, I pray not for the world. These have believed, those haven't. He's already dividing. He is the judge. And the judgment is, you see, our relationship to him, whether we believe in him or whether we do not. And yet, there is another judgment to come. The final judgment of the whole world. Paul, preaching at Athens, put it very plainly and very clearly when he said, God hath appointed a day in which he will judge the whole world in righteousness by that man whom he hath appointed, whereof he hath given assurance in that he hath raised him from the dead. It's a very solemn thought. And yet it's taught in the Bible from beginning to end. 
God created man in his own image and made him responsible. And men will have to stand in judgment before God. But he says here that God has committed that judgment to him. So in other words, we are judged by this. Have we believed this person? Are we like these Jews who don't recognize him, who think we can believe in God and reject Christ? Have we seen that that is an utter impossibility? That whosoever honoreth not the Son cannot honor the Father who hath sent him? We are face to face with Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, my friends. Have we realized this? Is your life based entirely upon the fact that the Son of God has come down into this world? Is that the biggest thing in your life? Is that the biggest thing in your estimate? Is that the controlling factor in all your conduct and behavior and action? If it isn't, I say, you're denying him, you're rejecting him. Do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth was none other than the eternal Son of God, the second person in the blessed Holy Trinity? Do you really believe that he has been down here, has taken our nature upon himself, and has come into this world to carry out the Father's plan. What was the plan? It was to save men. The Son of Man, he says, is come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's the Father's will. That's the thing that he's looked into. That's the thing he's seen. That's the thing the Father has shown him. The Father said, here it is, will you go? He said, I'll go. And he came to save you and me. And he did it by taking our sins upon himself, bearing them in his own body on that cross on Calvary's hill, that the justice and the righteousness of God might be satisfied, that God can forgive us freely and still remain just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. But he doesn't stop at pardon and forgiveness. He came, as I say, to give us life to quicken us, to give us this divine principle of life within us, to make us children of God, to give us a knowledge of God, and to make us heirs of God and his everlasting and eternal glory. Oh, I remind you again of the words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. Have you seen who he is? Have you seen that he alone can bring you to God? But oh, have you seen that having done what he did when he was here in this world for you, and what he's still doing now. He can bring you to God. Removing your sin. And giving you this new nature. 
quickening you and making of you a child of God to all eternity. My dear friend, get rid of the notion that you can honor the Father without honoring the Son. It is impossible. He is the only way to God. But thank God, He is the way. Believe on Him and come to this blessed knowledge of God. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.